would invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, and almost to the very last chapter of the Bible, not quite there yet. Uh, we are getting close. We are in chapter 21 today. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses of chapter 21. It's taken us a long time to get to this point. We started Revelation uh, this past summer and have been working our way through it uh, almost all of the of this past uh, year, the school year. And uh, we're finally in the last two chapters, uh, but I don't want it to end. And so uh, I'm going to do everything I can to keep us here for quite a while. Uh, there's such wonderful truth and beauty and goodness in these two last chapters of the Bible, uh, that there is much for us to, to uh, take in and to be encouraged by and to learn. Uh, today, we're just going to cover the first eight verses, uh, and even that, we won't cover them in the depth that they deserve. But listen as I read to you uh, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. John is speaking, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray together. Oh, our great God in heaven, we would pray and ask for the same Holy Spirit that opened John's eyes to see these wonderful things that he wrote down. The same Holy Spirit that enabled John to write these things down would be at work even right now, wherever we are, Father, opening our eyes, opening our hearts to see wonderful things, encouraging things, convicting things. From this portion of your word. Please do this for your glory as well as for the good of your people. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you had the opportunity, how would you end a classic epic story about good triumphing over evil? of heaven conquering hell. How would you end such an epic story? Two wonderful examples for us this morning. The first, the beloved and classic 
Chronicles of Narnia, this tale of good triumphing over evil. And in the last of the seven books that C.S. Lewis wrote that are called the Chronicles of Narnia, in the last book, which is called The Last Battle, after the last battle has taken place, in the last chapter of that book, which is called Farewell to Shadowland, in the very last page of that book, the children realize that they are experiencing something that is special, something that is extraordinary. They are seeing extraordinary things. They are feeling extraordinary things. They are seeing friends and family that they thought had been lost. They're experiencing something that is satisfying about where they find themselves. Aslan the lion is there. And at one point, Lucy speaks up and tells Aslan that she's afraid that they're going to be sent away from this magical, this spectacular place. And at that point, Aslan reveals to Lucy and to all that were there that they had died. And now what they were experiencing was heaven. This is what Aslan said. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And then the book ends with this. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful. I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's Lewis's description of the afterlife, of, of heaven. One of C.S. Lewis's close friends, J.R.R. Tolkien, also wrote quite an epic story, an epic tale of triumph, of good over evil, the Lord of the Rings. And toward the end of the final book, after the final battle has taken place, after the quest to destroy that famous ring is accomplished, Samwise Gamgee wakes up and ponders the future. He sees his long friend Gandalf there, and he says, Gandalf, I thought that you were dead, but then I thought I was myself dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Gandalf, his friend, responded, a great shadow has departed. Through the characters of Sam and Gandalf, Tolkien gives us a picture of heaven. It is a place where the shadow has departed. It is a place where everything that is sad, everything that is wrong, everything associated with death comes untrue. We're moving now into the final chapters of the book of Revelation. And as we come into chapters 21 and 22, we get this description from John of what comes after Jesus Christ comes again. The new heaven and the new earth. And what C.S. Lewis and Tolkien have captured in their famous works is very much in line with what we read in Revelation 21 and 22. Life here and now is but the cover and title page of the greatest story. What is coming? 
will go on forever and each chapter will get better and better. We're awaiting a place that is described for us here in Revelation 21 and 22 where everything sad will come untrue. And that's what we hear in Revelation 21 verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. As we begin our study of these final two chapters, this is what I want us to reflect on today. This, this statement that is made by God himself, that all things are going to be made new. Let's look at who made that statement and who is going to be the one who makes all things new. And secondly, let's look at how he's going to do it. And then lastly, let's look at for whom this is, uh, who gets this new newness, this new heaven and new earth. So first of all, how, and excuse me, by whom are all things going to be made new? Well, verse five answers that for us if we recognize it and put it into context. He who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Who is the one who is seated on the throne? We've seen this one before in Revelation. This is the one who judges all wicked and evil. This is the one who rightly receives worship, not only of the saints, but of all the angelic beings and all of creation. This is the one to whom the lamb goes to take the scroll and unroll it. This is the Lord God Almighty seated on the throne. And it is the Lord God Almighty who speaks. And he says he will make all things new. To drive that home, we get several descriptions of who this God is. This is the faithful God. You can see that from two phrases that we get in these verses. The first is in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, where we read at the end of verse 3, that behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then a second phrase that we get at the end of verse seven, where God again speaking says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Both of these phrases are God speaking and restating what God has said to his people over and over and over again, not only in Revelation, but throughout the scriptures and particularly in the Old Testament. These recurring promises that God has made to his people, we read them throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We read them in the historical books, which verse 7 is actually a quote out of, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We read them throughout the prophetical books and hear a quote particularly from Isaiah. At the end of time, at the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth, God again shows his people that he is faithful to his promises. The promise that he had made to them all those years ago is now the same promise that he is fulfilling as he brings the new heaven and the new earth. Literally through thousands and thousands of years from the Garden of Eden, when the promise went forth to Adam and Eve, the promise reestablished with Noah and the promise sign of the rainbow, the promise given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that God would be a God to them and to their families and to bless the world through them. God's protection of his people as they were sold into slavery in Egypt as he protected them. And then as he raised up Moses and redeemed his people from slavery. As he led their, his people in the wilderness 
and established a tabernacle where he would dwell with his people in the Holy of Holies. As he raised up King David and he established a temple, a place where people could go and to worship God and his presence was in their midst. As they went into exile in Assyria and Babylon, as he protected them and then as he brought them back and restored them once again. As they waited for 400 years from the time of the last Old Testament prophet until the time of the coming of John the Baptist. Through the life and death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Through the persecution and the suffering and the expansion of the New Testament church. Through church councils in the first centuries after Jesus was here. Dealing with heresies as he protected and established and sustained his people. Through the medieval times of persecution and the plague. Through the time of the Reformation as the gospel was refound. As worship was reestablished as God intended it. Even down to our own day. God has always been faithful to his promise that he will be with his people and he will make his people to be his very own. And God will always be faithful to that promise. Now, of course, we know that that's true because of something else that we read about this God in verse 5. God tells John to write these things down because they are trustworthy and true. And how do we know that his words are trustworthy and true? It's because God himself is the very definition of trust and truth. His very nature, his very character is truth and trustworthiness. It is who he is. It is what he does. He is trustworthy. He is true. In him there is no deceit and there is no falsehood. He is not only God the faithful, he is God the trustworthy and true. And also notice in verse 6 we get another character quality of him. A description of him in verse 6. He is God the sovereign. God speaking says that he is the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. That's also why he says he is the beginning and the end. This was a common ancient and contemporary form of speech where you would mention the opposite ends of a spectrum to highlight control of everything that is in between. God is the creator God from the beginning of time, and he is the judge at the end of time. In reality, this is a summary statement of what we have used throughout our looking into the book of Revelation, that if we were to summarize the entire book into one statement, it is that God is in control of history, and in the end, he wins. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It is through him that it is done. He is sovereign. He alone is the one who can say it is done. This is the one by whom all things will be made new. It is not through our efforts. It is not through our works. It is not through the political or governing powers. It is by God alone, who alone is the one who will make all things new. And so it is God alone who deserves to get all the glory. That's who's going to do it. But how is he going to do it? Now we see that in verses 1 through 4. The first thing we see is that he's going to be renewing or transforming. Many assume that when Jesus is going to come back, that this world, as we see it, as we know it, is going to be completely and entirely destroyed. And that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth that will be created out of nothing, so to speak. And it's understandable why some would think that way. We, we remember what we read last week in chapter 20, in verse 11, 
where John saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And then when we come to chapter 21, we read a new heaven and a new earth <coughs> appeared, for the first, first earth and the first heaven had disappeared. We also have Peter's words in 2 Peter 3 that speak about the heavens and the earth passing away with a roar of being set on fire and dissolving. But the sense that we get from the totality of Scripture, and even here from Revelation 21, is not the sense that the earth and the heavens are going to be utterly and completely destroyed, but that they're going to be transformed and renewed. Even the word new that is used here is the Greek word that conveys a newness in quality. It's not the sense of destruction and then creation out of nothing, but the picture here is one of transformation of every aspect of the creation. It's the same idea that we read about in the scriptures when we are told about what happens in the resurrection. When Jesus was resurrected, he interacted with his disciples and there was a newness to his body, but it was not entirely different. There was both discontinuity, but also continuity with Jesus' body before he was crucified. And the same is true for the description that we get about our resurrection, of what happens to our bodies when we are resurrected. There is a newness to our bodies, and yet there is some connection with the now, both discontinuity and continuity. The new heaven and the new earth will be utterly and completely transformed and renewed, but they won't be completely different. All things bad will be removed. We're going to see that in just a minute. All aspects of the fall will be removed from creation, and yet there is still something that will be tangible in the new heaven and the new earth to what we experience here. This is this is part of how God is going to make all things new. He will renew. He will transform the heaven and the earth and make them new. We're going to come back to this a little bit more as we get to the end of chapter 21 and move into chapter 22. But, but just for a moment, I want you to pause and to realize that the truth of this actually gives meaning to our work here and now. If this world isn't going to be simply burned up and thrown away when Jesus returns, but it's going to be transformed and renewed, then the things that we are doing now matter. The things that we are doing now to serve the Lord have some sort of a connection with the new heaven and the new earth. Our vocation, our hobbies, the things that we're good at, the things that we enjoy, that God has given us skills and abilities of doing. They have meaning and purpose beyond just this world. It gives meaning and purpose and weight to what we are doing now and here. Now, before we move on to see other ways that God is going to be doing this, let me just mention one uh, comment, a quick word about the end of verse 1, where we're told that not only will there be new heavens and new earth because the, the old heavens and the old earth pass away, but also that the sea will be no more. Now, for those of us who love the ocean, uh, who love uh, perhaps to fish, uh, this sounds kind of sad, kind of discouraging. But I don't think that what is being said here is that there aren't going to be oceans and bodies of water in the new heaven, in the new earth. We have to remember what the sea represents throughout Revelation. It represents chaos 
It represents rebellion. It's the place that we heard about earlier from where the beasts will come. It's the place that we're told that, that houses the dead. It's used as a symbol of the world's idolatrous rebellion against God. It, it, is, it is representative of the origin of cosmic evil and wickedness. So what we're being told here is simply that in the new heavens and the new earth, none of those things will be present. They will be no more. But it doesn't mean that there won't be oceans for us to enjoy and to explore. And bodies of water to enjoy and to explore. God is going to be doing, making all things new by renewing and transforming. But he's also going to do it by bringing intimate communion with himself. That's what we read in verses 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. It's almost as John, it's, it's almost as if John is, is seeing this picture of what it's going to be like and he's grasping for ways to describe it. How can I describe this? How can I write this down so that people would understand what I am seeing and experiencing? It's like a holy city, he says. It's like the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now we're going to read more about that in verses 9 and following in the coming weeks. But he also says it's not just like a holy city. It's also like a bride, a bride that is beautiful and, and adorned for her husband. He's trying to convey to us a picture of what he sees, a picture of intimacy, the closeness of being in a city. A bride and a husband sharing intimacy on their wedding night. It's further described in verse 3. It's not just intimate, it's, all, it's an intimate communion with God. Because we're told that this place will be a place where God will dwell with us. That we will dwell together in perfect communion. We will know and we will be known. That's how it started in the Garden of Eden. God establishing Adam and Eve and in perfect communion, in fellowship with one another. And so what we're seeing here is also what is told to us throughout the Old Testament God gave pictures to his people of how he was going to reestablish his communion, his intimate communion with his people, that although it had started that way in the garden through sin, had been disconnected. But he gave them pictures of this promise that God would dwell with his people once again. He gave them a picture in the wilderness as he went with them, as he guided them. As he created the tabernacle and then the temple where he could dwell and, and tabernacle with them, dwell in their midst. But here we have at the end of time the promise being fulfilled, perfect and eternal communion between God and his people. There's nothing between us. No need for a buffer, no need for a mediator. Every need that we have, every desire that we have, every want that we have being perfectly and completely satisfied by our Father in heaven. God's going to do it by renewing and transforming, by creating and recreating this intimate communion with him. But also we read in verse 3 that he's going to be establishing biblical diversity. Now it's maybe a little bit hard to see that from verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people. There's actually a better translation than, than what is appearing for us here in the ESV. That word people is actually peoples. It is a plural word. It's best translated that God will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. You, even some of your Bibles have a textual note to that effect. It's pointing to the fulfillment of the promise that we've been reading throughout Revelation and throughout the entirety of Scripture. We, we remember in Revelation 7, verse 9, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the, the throne and before the Lamb. This was a promise that God had given to his people all the way back to the time of Abraham. And God is now saying, I am going to make all things new by filling the new heaven and the new earth with true biblical diversity. Every nation, all tribes, every language, all colors, every kind of people will be present. Again, we'll come back to this a little bit later in coming weeks. But let me just pause for a second to, to encourage you that it, this is God's will. This is what he is doing. This is part of how he is going to be making all things new. This is what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like. So that gives us reason to be pursuing this now, in our lives now, in our church now, in our community now, that we would start to see true biblical diversity in our midst. One last thing that God is going to be doing to be making all things new, we see in verse 4. He's going to be removing all sadness and death. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Death and all things related to sadness will be undone, will be removed and made untrue. All of these former things that he mentions in verse, in verse 4 are things that first showed up in the Garden of Eden, after the fall of Adam and Eve, as a result of sin entering creation. And here at the end of time, we have the creator God saying that he will fulfill his promise that in the new garden, they will not be present. They will be undone. It's continuing the thought that he has about the sea being no more. All the things related to the fall, all the things related to sin and to wickedness and to brokenness and to death. All of those things will be gone. Last week I mentioned a poem by George Herbert where he was mocking death. And on the one hand, we can say that death is very real. It's very painful to experience. And yet, from the perspective of the Christian, from the perspective of the one who has eternal life that goes beyond the moment of death, there's a sense in which we can... We can revel in the fact that death has no power over us. Another poem today from John Donne, well-known 16th, 17th century English poet and pastor, also wrote a poem mocking death called Death Be Not Proud. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For, thou, for those whom thou thinkest Thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill them. 
from rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be much pleasure, thee, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men, which thee do go, rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings and desperate men, and dust with poison, war and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. God has promised to us that there is a day coming when death and all things related to sadness and brokenness will be no more. The Lord is making all things new by removing sadness, by removing death and making them untrue. And this is hope and strength for us now as we wait in the midst of dealing with sadness and tears and mourning and death. We know that they are temporary. The Lord promises that what is coming will so far outweigh what we experience in this life that they will pale in comparison to what awaits us. One last thing that we see from the passage today, and that's for whom these wonderful blessings uh, will be true. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Particularly, we see who these blessings, who these promises are not for in verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's a sober and sombering warning that the wonderful promises, the wonderful realities that we read about in chapter 21 are not coming for everyone. Verse 8 gives us the description that has been used in other places throughout Revelation and throughout the scriptures. It's not a new list that John is creating. And it says that these people will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We've already, we've already talked about that even in the past couple of weeks. That's a description of hell. It's a description of the place that those who are not in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns... It's where they, their eternal destiny will be forever. So God is saying again, as we come to the conclusion of our passage today, that those who are not in communion with him, those who are not in fellowship with him, those who do not have a relationship with him, they are not his people, and they will not enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. I just have this to be an incredible, powerfully, a powerful motivation for you today. If you're listening to this broadcast and you're not in a relationship with the Lord God Almighty through his son, Jesus Christ, then know that these wonderful promises are not for you this morning. Instead, be motivated in your heart of hearts to, to reach out to God and to know that he is the truth. What you'll find out as your heart is changed, as you put your faith in Christ, as you've reached out to him, it is him who has been reaching out to you and opening your heart that you might see these wonderful truths and put your faith in him today. That's who it's not for. Who is it for? Well, we read that in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, 
and he will be my son. Those who conquer, or other places in Revelation, particularly in chapters 2 and 3, and the, the letters that we looked at to those churches in Asia Minor, it's called them overcomers. The overcomers are those who conquer, those who persevere to the end, will have this wonderful heritage that we're reading about in chapter 21. This is a call for those who are in Christ Jesus, who profess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give in. Keep going. Persevere. Trust the Lord. Follow him to the end. The reward that is coming far outweighs anything that we might be called to endure now. But as we finish, can we just acknowledge the obvious for a moment? As we come to verse 8, and we read these things, we read this description of these people. Can't most of us find ourselves in this verse? Can't most of us see ourselves, at least in some way or another, being described by what we read in verse 8? These are things that we struggle with as Christians. These are the things that we find ourselves at times not overcoming and not conquering. And so what does that mean for us? What hope is there for us? Well, if you're in Christ this morning, the hope of the gospel is here for us. We read at the end of verse 7, God speaking says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Most scholars acknowledge that in God saying these words that John is recording for us, he's actually quoting something that he had said before, something that God had said before. Where did God say these words? It was in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as he was speaking with his servant David, King David, and he promised David that one would come after him who would reign forever and ever. It was a promise that God was giving to David of a greater and better King David who would come and who would rule and who would reign over God's people forever and ever. It was a promise of the fulfillment of, of what God had promised in Genesis chapter 3. The promise of the Messiah who would come. He's promising and in, in, in giving this promise of Jesus the Messiah. And so God says in Revelation 21.7, I will be his God and he will be my son. And we remember not only the words from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where these words were used to point forward to Christ, but we also remember these, this, the sense of these words being uttered by God himself again at Jesus' baptism, where God the Father declared, this is my beloved son. So you say, okay, well, that's great. But how does that help me in my sin? It is because of this, that if you are in Christ, then you have been united to Jesus by faith. And that means that everything that is true for him is true for you. Jesus's heritage of being beloved and accepted as a son means that if you are in Christ, you get that as well. Jesus died for the sins of his people. He died to pay for the sins of his people that are mentioned in verse 8. And if you are in Christ, then you no longer have the status of those things. You are no longer owned by those things. You may continue to struggle with those things, but they no longer describe your status. So on the one hand, that fills us with an incredible amount of hope, does it not? If I am in Christ this morning, 
then I have no fear of death. I have no fear of the second coming of Jesus. Because the gospel is true. But on the other hand, it also fills us with motivation and strength that we would fight and to lean against our sins. If Christ has died to pay for these sins in verse 8, then they no longer have power over me. And I'm not enslaved to them anymore. And so it gives me new and powerful motivation to lean against and to fight and to root out these sins from my life for the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Here is a trustworthy and true statement. God is making all things new. He is the only one who can do it, and he surely will do it because he said that he would. It's going to involve transforming the heavens and the earth into something that is beyond what we can imagine. It's going to involve God dwelling with us as his people in perfect intimate communion, where we have no more needs and no more desires that go unmet. It means the creation of a true biblical diversity of all kinds of people. And it means making all things that are sad and related to death untrue. Christian, this is your heritage this morning. You are a child of God. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't lose hope. Persevere to the end. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that you have given us Revelation 21 and 22. They are full of hope. They are full of reminders of your faithfulness to your promise. They are full of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. As we sit at this wonderful banquet of these words, we pray that you would fill us, that you would nourish us, that you would strengthen us, and that you would cause us to be people of a hope and a peace that far outweighs and extends beyond anything that we might go through in this life. Give us the strength to persevere to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.